this morning. I'd like to explore working with thought today, how different ways that that we can work with this thinking mind that Wes spoke about last night, but I think we're all kind of familiar with it. And looking at this through the lens of impermanence, how everything arises, has its being and vanishes. One of the things we're studying and learning about how to be ever more sensitive to as we practice is this activity of coming and going, the birth and death of experience, of each thing, of each phenomenon, of each being. And we can see this profound dharmic truth with each breath. Noticing the beginning of a breath when it's born. And the end when it passes away. Moment by moment, feeling each breath arise, have its being and disappear. And sometimes you can sense a little pause between the breaths, before one breath is replaced by another. In that pause, there's stillness. And then the arising of the next breath. we can see this activity of impermanence with every sensation in the body, in the shifting, changing, dancing field of sensation that is our body.
with each sound. The little bird singing. Song begins, sings itself, and falls silent. With each swallow or blink of the eye. And there's really no pause. This is ongoing stream of experience. <coughs> Maybe the momentary pause of stillness between the breaths very fleeting. (coughs) And when we attend to process of thinking and how thinking happens in the mind. We can see too how our thoughts appear, persist, change, and disappear. Sometimes our thoughts, you can see how they happen in your mind. You know, sometimes our thoughts are, are visual, like images or photos. Or silent movies. Or talking movies. Sometimes they're more auditory, like we can hear a thought or speak it, talking to ourselves. Some might seem very unrelated to us, like listening to somebody else's conversation in their head. Observing the thoughts affects them. And we notice this kind of branching, associative nature of the thinking, 
is sometimes called papancha, how one thought leads to another, branching, proliferating. But when we attend carefully to the process of thinking, we can see they actually don't last very long. For something so ephemeral, almost diaphanous, they are such a powerful force in our lives when we (coughs) believe them. kind of rule our lives when we're not aware of them. And you can feel how some thoughts generate emotions. They can send us just whirling into reactivity. And some emotions that come generate so many thoughts, whole chapters and stories. It's almost like we're sitting in a train station, watching the trains of thought go by. But we don't have um, announcements, self-hatred arriving on track seven, pride on track two, Sorrow, track 11. And here comes joy barreling into the station. When we're lost in thought, noting what it is, sometimes just thinking or planning is enough. And sometimes we need to investigate a little more closely. So how do we do that? Noah mentioned in his talk, sometimes we need to, when something's sticking around, spend some time and just noting, remembering, arguing, fantasizing, dreaming, planning may not be enough. When thoughts are strong, 
and they have a really tenacious sticking hold on our mind. This is when we use mindfulness to investigate the thinking. And this means seeing what's happening in the body and the mind right now while the thought is happening. It doesn't mean that we're exploring the content of the thoughts, analyzing or thinking about why we might be having this story going on. It means really offering our full attention to this present moment experience. the self-talk or sounds or mental images that make up the thought, and to the sensations or emotions that come with it. And this is how we work with emotions too, that we can feel the expression, the energy in the body. So centering the attention in the body really helps to disengage from the content, the story, the thought is telling. You might feel contraction in the chest or belly (coughs) or tension around the eyes and forehead. Sometimes tightness in the arms and legs or pulsing or buzzing in the head. Just pay attention to these physical sensations. bring attention to these physical sensations, we start to see this intimate connection between the mind and the body. We start to see the emotions that are connected to our thoughts. And tuning into the body helps cut through that, that torrent or um, the intensity of the momentum of certain kinds of thoughts.
Sometimes thoughts and feelings are so deeply troubling that bringing mindfulness to them can feel scary, that they might even be amplified. And this is a time to maybe offer some metta, place a hand on the heart, Replace those thoughts with some tenderness, some loving-kindness. Thoughts and feelings happen It's nothing personal. As Wes says, we are not our fault. Our thoughts and feelings too are impermanent. Based on causes and conditions. remember our work in mindfulness is not to quiet or still the mind to stop thinking although that can happen at times our work is to make this thinking conscious to bring our fleeting thoughts even into our awareness And this is how mindfulness is that eye of the hurricane. How, as George was saying, we get to have some choice about how we react, how we respond.
if you notice that you're caught up in a thinking storm, just move the body back, maybe half an inch, an inch. Just step back into this posture of react, of receiving. Um, the 13th century Zen master Dogen called it taking the backward step into receiving the bird song, the breath, the sensations in the body, these fleeting experiences of this immense current of aliveness that is our being.
uh, yesterday, I think it was John asked a question about um, being judgmental when we just catch ourselves lost in thought or thinking and, and how he was um, speaking very beautifully about that. And really when we notice, it's, it's a moment we could really, we could rejoice because, you know, it's like uh, I was lost and now I'm found, you know, I'm back. Or um, it's a kind of mindfulness as amazing grace. I was blind. I was inside the story um, in the grip of the hand of thought. And now I see. Right? We can, uh, there's a beautiful Zen book by Uchiyama Roshi called Opening the Hand of Thought. You know, we can let those thought balloons just drift away. And you can use your imagination, too, to help. Um, I remember in my first Vipassana retreat, I had um, in my imagination a cookie jar for each one of the hindrances. And then I would put the thoughts, when they came, you know, into their particular... I like cookies, you could have jars of something else, but into their particular cookie jar... um, whether it's balloons, you know, using, also using your imagination to help. So, are there questions this morning? Yes. I have a question that's been kind of developing over several days. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you could everybody hear that. Um, it was really a beautiful Dharma talk, actually. Um, that uh, what's your name? My name is Tommy. So Tommy is saying that on the one hand, here we are subject to uh, these very impersonal processes and forces that are beyond our control, as um, we've all been teaching, and as Wes was teaching last night in this talk about anatta or no self. But on the other hand, there does seem to be a role for personal responsibility and choice and uh, how does the Buddha address this. And really, I think the way that it's addressed is in looking at sort of the three pillars or the three foundations of this practice. And one of them is ethical living, sila, we call it, or virtue or goodness. And that has to do with um, our intention. Uh, there is an eightfold path, eight steps um, to awakening. And the first one is this wise view of things that life is, um, it is very impersonal. We don't choose to be born or die. There is that sense of um, vast processes at work, and we are just life in the form of this being, right? Uh, but at the same time, there, is, um, there are the precepts and there is a need to live in the most kindful, loving way that we can to bring happiness. Um, the three pillars, so there's ethical living. 
and there's meditation, and there's the wisdom that arises from the combination of ethical living and meditation, the combination of our very personal lives and relationships, and we'll talk more about that toward the end of the week, um, our very personal lives and relationships, and our participation in this universal dimension of life. So we try to address the particular or personal dimensions through our behavior, how we are in the retreat, living with each other, and um, appreciating or tolerating each other's humanness in that process. Um, But at the same time, seeing the universal dimension, the poignancy of all of us encapsulated in our little lonesome thought worlds, uh, you know, and yet all in the same boat, all of us subject to impermanence, all of us subject, um, my Zen teacher Coben used to say, we're all spiritually the same size, six feet under. (laughs) You know, we're all in the same boat. So there is a kind of um, paradox, in a way, between, yes, there's this, but I think, for me, the way that I um, maybe solve the tension is by seeing in the particular personal experience of this moment when I'm mindful and somewhat metified, um, you know, suffusing that mindfulness with kindness, as Noah was saying in the first day, then the particular experience of me, it might be collapsed in suffering, it might be flowering, openness and joy, but that particular experience becomes an experience of what it's like to be alive or to be a human being. So it connects to something bigger or more universal. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Jake. Thank you. Jake is just saying thank you. Thank you. Oh. And I was just going to go on. I love this team. This is the most wonderful team. <laughs> we're, we're already, um, well, we're really happy to be here together. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Go ahead.
sort of curious any comments on that tension, but the, the question that is emerging is, is there a place for anger in, in the teaching that we're engaged with and learning about? So that's a great question. Could everybody hear Jake's question? Uh, it's a question about anger and the role of anger um, in our lives. And sometimes listening to the Buddhist teachings, you can get the feeling that anger is just a terrible thing that you should try to avoid at all costs because it can be so destructive. You know, one moment of anger can destroy a lifetime of affection or something like this. And... Um, and there's no question that anger can be destructive, but I think the distinction, the two distinctions I would make, one is feeling anger and the other one acting between, the distinction between feeling anger and acting from that place, and then the distinction between what you're talking about, which is anger at injustice, um, anger that fuels the intention to change things or to work toward change, which is a skillful kind of emotion. It's one that you teach. But at the same time, we know that people, activists, burn out from the constant stress of that kind of anger, among other things. And so I think the real question is, can you stop being angry? Can you summon that anger to generate the energy to act in skillful ways to help our world? and address uh, all kinds of injustice, environmental, social, um, all kinds of injustice. But can you also rest in a state of more peaceful or loving-kindness that can nourish and support that work? So that, because ultimately that anger at injustice comes from love and caring and the willingness to see the lives of those who contribute to ours, but are often invisible, or um, we use the word underserved, but that's a really, that's a euphemism for, um, for lots of discrimination and unfairness in our world. So anger in that way can be a kind of koan, a kind of area of investigation, like where is this anger necessary and skillful, like the anger that you're in a way trying to give people permission to feel, right? And to see. And, and when is it time for something else? And can there be something else that isn't apathy or despair? There's a beautiful book that I would really recommend to you. Um, called Buddhist Practice on Western Ground by Harvey Aronson. And he writes the most, um, it's the most discerning, intelligent writing on anger in this context that I've read so far. So it's Harvey Aronson with, I think, two A's at the beginning. One, just one. My literate friend. A big question. Yes. Um, first, I wanted to thank you as well. Your your voice to me this morning was kind of like a um, 
staff over a week. And I'm also struck Yeah, I think that the question of how long to hang out there, if you have a choice, there's no need to hang out there. Uh, Usually when there's something intense like that, our attention is compelled, drawn to it, right? And then to hang out there long enough to explore it. And then if you're able to let it, just let it be. But sometimes we can't. And that's when the investigation, the exploration, the various tools that we're teaching of noting and sensing and so forth are really, you know, seeing that it's not personal. All these um, foundations of the teaching come in handy, but if you can let it be, do. Now, there's not necessarily a virtue to staying with that intensity unless it's calling to and insisting So I just looked at the clock, and thank you for your questions. We have to stop. I want to make uh, two announcements. Uh, One is that somebody has lost a pair of black flip-flops. So if you... It's really easy to put on the wrong pair of shoes. So if you have, please just look at them. Um, (laughs) If they don't look really familiar, (laughs) they might not be yours. And... We used to have um, temple rules when I was practicing um, Zen in the Korean tradition. And one of the temple rules was, you may not wear somebody else's shoes. (laughs) So just check your feet. And somebody else lost their whole toiletry kit. I mean, it was taken. So again, if you notice, oh my, I have a new kind of shampoo. (laughs) I don't remember buying that. Um, Don't be ashamed. Don't be so embarrassed or ashamed that you don't want to return it. Just return it. Um, It wasn't your fault. Um, Look, we all have uh, moments when mindfulness takes a holiday. Um, So another announcement. Um, At 2 o'clock in the sanctuary, George and Joanna will hold an affinity group for those who identify as a person of color. So there will be a POC group at two in the sanctuary. And um, it's just a way to meet and discuss, and it's completely optional. Um, But it can be nice to gather that way. So that will be available at two o'clock. And now it's time for meetings, if you have one. Um, I'm struggling in an uphill battle to call them meetings instead of interviews. Because, really, who's interviewing what for, wh- for whom? I mean, for what? Who's interviewing whom for what? Anyway, if you have a meeting, it's going to be time. Um, 
and is not just really enjoy this beautiful, beautiful, sparkling day and have a wonderful day of practice. Okay, so we actually need practice leaders, uh, two people. Is anybody willing to sit up here at um, 10.30 and 12 o'clock? Do we have a 10.30 volunteer? Thank you. And a 12 o'clock volunteer? Thank you. Behind Devin. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.